0: Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of our Minute CME curriculum. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. So, hello, welcome to our presentation on XLH best practices in treatment and transition. My name is John Mann. I'm a professor of pediatrics at Nationwide Children's Hospital, the Ohio State University College of Medicine. And I have the pleasure of being the medical director of our metabolic bone program at Nationwide Children's Hospital. And I'm delighted today to have the opportunity to talk about XLH care and these advances with someone who's been uh, a devotee, and expert in this field for some time, Dr. Guido Feeler. And I'll have Guido introduce himself uh, to you right now.
1: Yes. Well, thank you so much. That's a very kind introduction. I'm a professor of pediatrics, medicine, and pathology and laboratory medicine at the University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario. That is a small town in the middle between Detroit and Toronto. And um, I, I feel very privileged. I have been working on XLH since 1992. Um, I had 66 patients when I was in Berlin and was actually part of the consortium that found the gene. And I've always had a great interest in that um, and was always very disappointed about the treatment and also wondered whether some of the late complications like hypertension and like nephrocalcinosis are all treatment induced. So to have new novel choices for the treatment is actually very exciting.
0: Yes, Guido, you know, I agree. We b- living through the frustrations of practice in this condition in the 1980s when I trained and, and seeing advance over the last four decades has been truly breathtaking. So so we're we're in uh, we're in really uh, a good company here so first question i would ask you is is just to share with us your thoughts about what is the best treatment these days for children and adults with xlh
1: well in my opinion i think we should have lifelong therapy with brosumab and we can have a conversation about when to start but especially when you have families especially when father is having a girl then it is very clear that they are affected And I have very limited experience starting under one year, but it has been terrific. And they have not had the same secondary things. And uh, my lecture earlier, um, we talked about the dental uh, issues and they actually increased on the borosimab therapy, probably more in the older children than the younger children, but most of the dentin formation occurs in the first year of life. And it would be uh, good to have a harmonization in the world that um, everyone has the same age for inclusion. A lot of countries have age one and not six months. In Canada, we have six months. But I think we should actually push for starting as early as possible because even after two months, the alkaline phosphatase can be very elevated.
0: Yes, and in the United States, of course, the FDA approves the berosumab for six months of age and older now. But I agree with you. We have young children. We know they have XLH, and it seems... Unfortunate that they would walk on those legs uh, when we know they are demineralized and and don't have the strength and, and end up having uh, some of the you know the clinical consequences of their disorder. Uh, I know I just recently had a a two boys. Uh, mom had XLH or has XLH, and you know the second boy we diagnosed you know in the first couple months of life and right at six months he got started. And he is straight as can be where his older brother that took a little while to get in to see us. Cause you know, mom wasn't sure. And all of that uh, does have some Boeing that uh, is getting better on treatment, but, but yeah, it's remarkable to see the difference with a child that starts much earlier. So I, if I may say the other thing I find remarkable
1: on the two patients I started at six months is the height. So they actually are, at the same back so in the first six months you lose a little bit of the height velocity but then they are back at the percentile so one of the two kids has a fairly tall mother affected father so we don't know what his target height would be but she is on the 93rd percentile again which was the same as at her birth and she's now two years of age and she never had any dental issues either but i think actually the dental Issues would be a, um, a reason because much of the dentin is formed in the first few months of life that we start from birth.
0: And Guido, is there any role for conventional therapy in a child with known XLH these days?
1: Well, I am not sure that it really works, if I may say so. First of all, you give them a huge amount of sodium because most of the phosphate supplements are sodium phosphate supplements and i think complication like hypercalciuria like nephrocarcinosis and even the hypertension may be driven by that because before they start treatment they're actually hypocalciuric and not hypercalciuric and then you can get it wrong with the mix of an alpha and of the phosphate supplementation i think that that treatment is today obsolete the real challenge is by far, at least in my country First, reimbursement, because it is expensive, and not all provinces have universally approved it yet. And then the in Canada, I think we're the only country in the world where we have to do the record severity score every year, and that jacks up the radiation exposure substantially. I calculated, actually, the can- lifetime cancer risk from 44% in Ontario. To 56 percent with these annual X-rays, and I think that is ethically unjustifiable. And that uh, brings me to a question: Is anyone else requiring the RSS? I mean, don't we just go by the alkaline
0: phosphatase? Yeah, yeah that is not required in the states, uh, Guido. And, and 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 certainly different your government insurance plans might have different requirements. You know, we've had some that have required an FGF23 or have required a TMP-GFR. I've had patients where I have the abnormal gene, low serum phosphorus, and in my mind, I have the diagnosis, but they still require the urine TMP-GFR. So I think there's variability uh, even in what's required to initiate therapy. But but I agree with you. I really think the conventional therapy is clearly inferior and when we have something that works as well as what you and I have experienced with burosumab, you know, we're treating over 30 children right now. No one has asked to go back on conventional therapy. The convenience of once a uh, fortnight
1: for, with an injection, as compared to four times a day, or if they have diarrhea, even more than four times a day, taking the sodium phosphate is just unbelievable. The quality of life also has improved so much. And I have never really been able in a severe case with the conventional therapy to prevent that knee pain and that chronic pain or the antithiopathy and uh, all of that later in life. And there's really big hope that um, the up therapy long-term will ameliorate all of this. And if we start early enough, never ever develops.
0: Yes. So that's the point about starting early. Another thing that comes up in our clinic, and I wonder if it does with you, is the parent comes in, is not on any treatment, has been told there was no reason to be on treatment after they were done growing, and yet has back pain, may have had a pseudo fracture in the last year, has enthesopathy. And I believe one of my roles in taking care of the children in these families is to really open the other affected adults, the parents, and maybe even in one case, we have a grandfather who started therapy as well as his daughter, who's the mother of my patient. So I think part of my role is to really educate them and encourage them to talk to our adult uh, XLH experts in my region. So I completely agree. Um, I have have
1: several kindreds where um, grandmother and then three children that I treated earlier, <laughs> and then their grandchildren are all on therapy, and uh, the, the benefits are uh, quite amazing. What is an interesting development, so I work very closely with one adult nephrologist who sees the bulk of the adult patients, is um, the dosing, though. And the, we're going to talk about a transition later, but it seems to be happening at large scale that when the drug was initially introduced... It was in both age groups every four weeks but then they figured out that in children it wasn't good enough and now we have 0.8 to 2.0 milligram per kilo every two weeks for the children but in adults it's 0.8 to 2 milligram per kilo every four weeks and i know of multiple parents that have been switched to uh uh, every two weeks um with the maximum dose that they can prescribe for four weeks Uh, and they Really, experience how the pain, especially pre tibial, recurs when they're coming to the end of the dosing interval with the four weeks. So, I think there is some work to be done to really um, yeah, tease out what exactly is the best dose. And I think it is probably twofold um, one is the sex, the biologic sex, the other one is um, the severity of the mutation. Yeah. That is a very interesting paper from China looking at a large cohort comparing C and N terminal mutations. And as you know very well, there are like 770 different mutations. Some of them have a very severe phenotype and some of them have a much milder phenotype. And I think some um, phenotype-genotype correlation also for the dose finding would be very helpful.
0: You've been listening to CME on ReachMD.